Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I think lawyers, and particularly corporate lawyers, um, what they do as lawyers is so intertwined with the business of their clients that at some point, I think any lawyer with a healthy ego would say, I can be a business person. Uh, I can do that. Legal advice and business advice can often blur, but successful corporate lawyers intuitively know the difference and are able to move between the two worlds with ease. If you're a private equity fund, your core business is buying and selling businesses. And so what the lawyer does is so closely aligned with what the client does. It's a very easy transition. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Given the legal complexity of just about every aspect of running a company, good counsel is essential at every twist and turn. So it should come as no surprise that a lifetime in corporate law usually translates into an incredible wealth of knowledge that can extend an attorney's value far beyond just legal advice. Case in point is CEO of the global law firm Deckert and my guest this week, Henry Nassau. First joining Deckert in 1987 and returning in 2003 after a stint as in-house general counsel and briefly COO at Internet Capital Group, Henry served as chair of Deckert's corporate and securities group for a combined 14 years, representing private equity sponsors, venture capital firms, public and private corporations, management teams, boards, and special committees, and advising clients on mergers, acquisitions, dispositions, investments, security offerings, proxy contests, corporate governance, and general corporate matters. CEO since July of 2016, Henry has played an instrumental role in expanding the Philadelphia-based firm's international platform across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Today, Deckard has equal representation of lawyers inside and outside the United States. Henry and I spoke about the rise and fall of the dot-com bubble as it relates to today's economic environment, trends in globalization, and why the transition from private equity law to business person can be a relatively seamless one. Let's enter the arena with Henry Nassau. So the firm was founded in 1875 and can really trace its first 75 years 85 years to the growth of industrial America. We represented the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was the largest corporation in the country. And as it expanded, Deckert's practice expanded with it. We also represented Girard Bank and a number of institutions in Philadelphia. 
And starting in the 1950s and 1960s, of course, Penn Central filed a well-known bankruptcy, largest bankruptcy in history. The Philadelphia banks were all eventually acquired by regional and then national banks and the industrial wealth of Philadelphia. They all went away. And so the traditional economic base of Philadelphia faded. And in some ways, we became a commuting suburb of New York. But eventually, you know, we as a firm in the 80s made a conscious decision that instead of abdicating sophisticated corporate work to New York, we would aggressively go after it. And it was called management buyouts at the time rather than private equity. Uh, we decided we would get in that business because it was sophisticated. And for whatever reasons, the New York firms weren't particularly interested in it. It was considered a little sketchy for its time, I think. That opened a door that Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago and Eckert in Philadelphia sort of rushed through. And of course, that business has exploded. I'm told there's about a trillion dollars of undrawn capital in the private equity space and venture capital space. And we've gone from 200 lawyers when I joined in 1987 to 1,100 now with 22 offices around the globe. Obviously, you've, you've ascended to the role of CEO, but you know it all started somewhere. Kind of where did you grow up and how did you kind of know when you wanted to be a lawyer and how did that become a passion for you? It's a good question. And I look back on it and go, exactly how did this happen? But I, I grew up uh, on what was left of a family farm about 25 miles west of Philadelphia. And when I was a child, it was a operating farm, but not a lot of it left at this point. And I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I um, specialized in having a very good time, probably too good a time. And so I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what I might do. I went into the PhD program in applied economics my senior year, which was a very math intensive program. And I realized I was the only person in the class that didn't aspire to be become a professor. And everyone else was very smart, very driven, clearly the most academically intense educational experience I ever had. But I knew I wasn't going to go uh, become a professor at a college or a university. I always had a uh, probably too healthy an appetite for making money and indulgent living. So really not having any great alternative, I went to a small law school in the middle of Pennsylvania. It was not a prominent law school. It wasn't an Ivy League. And, you know, spent some time there contemplating how did this end up? I, I could have been someone and what happened, but I did well. Had a little bit of a hard time getting an interview, let alone a job at any of the big Philadelphia firms. Clearly couldn't get an interview at Deckard. But I went to a regional firm. And then in, in the mid 80s, I could tell what was happening with Drexel and Skadden Arps, that there was a very sophisticated practice of law that the regional firms weren't going to be part of. So I thought I was going to have to recalibrate and go to one of the big New York firms and start all over again. And someone suggested I meet Bart Winokur and Dan O'Donnell at Deckert. And I came here in 1987. They had great expectations for me. I was woefully unprepared, uh, but... Uh, I had a pregnant wife and a big mortgage. I had no choice but to find a way to get it to work. That's the ideal employee, right? <laughs> right. To their credit, they hung in there with me. And what I found was actually there were a number of people, uh, sometimes wealthy families, but other people in Philadelphia doing private equity control transactions and relatively underserved. They wouldn't have thought of going to a New York firm. So I didn't do quite as much of the 
very high-end work with Bart and Dan, but I did a lot in Philadelphia. And then during the 90s, that work just exploded. And it was a great opportunity because they were happy to bring what the firm as a whole had, had learned doing very large transactions for uh, Citibank uh, to, to their own endeavors. It's amazing how, you know, people's careers unfold and there's a lot of uh, skill and hard work in there and some luck and that's all okay. But fast forward, Henry, to being at Deckert for maybe a decade, maybe a little bit more and, and you're a practicing attorney, but you decide to go in-house at one of your clients. That must have been a tough decision. Take us through that decision and what was the adjustment like going from a law firm to actually working in a company? It was a great experience. I think lawyers and particularly corporate lawyers, what they do as lawyers is so intertwined with the business of their clients that at some point, um, I think any lawyer with a healthy ego would say, I can be a business person. Uh, I can do that. And if you're a private equity fund, your core business is buying and selling businesses. And so what the lawyer does is so closely aligned with what the client does. It's a very easy transition. But I love Deckert. They Gave me a great opportunity, made me head of the corporate team. I thought I'd spend the rest of my career. But in the late 90s, the tech boom was flourishing, and Internet Capital Group was one of the safeguard-sponsored companies that I'd worked with since its formation. And they said, I'd like you to come while we go public, and appealed to my greed. I turned to the firm and said, look, you made me. I never would have had this opportunity. You have a complete veto if you don't think I should go um, or be disloyal, I won't go. A lot of Hamlet-like discussions between Bart and me for a few weeks, and ultimately we decided I should go give it a try, and if it didn't work out, no real guarantees, but a, a, at least a soft understanding I could find my way back. And it was great. I would say one of the things that when you go from a big law firm to being in-house, um, you find that Lawyers aren't valued nearly as much as you might think they are, probably more of a, a commodity. So it took me a little while to find my way to say, you know, I have some value to bring to this equation, even though I'm not perceived as a traditional businessman that goes beyond practicing law. And one of the things we've always said at Deckert, and I think is, you know, people don't ask us for the legal advice. They ask us for commercial and legal advice, and we should always be willing to take a position on a business solution. And, you know, don't be afraid to speak up because if you're adding real value, your clients will appreciate it. So I went through that period. And then, as you mentioned, I ultimately became chief operating officer, probably because, as, as you know, ICG was initially a, a success beyond comprehension, $50 billion market cap six months after it went public. And then the tech collapse came and, you know, we spent three years skirting bankruptcy and avoiding it and dealing with our convertible bonds and headcount went from 150 to 15. So learned a, a lot of different things there. I would just say all very different than what I expected when I went there. Henry, what was the experience like going public and, you know, coming out of the $3 billion market cap and then, you know, shooting to 50 billion, like what was that actually like walking in the door every day? Was it just like a huge distraction to, to the execution of the business or was everyone like dancing in the hallways? Like what, what was it actually like? Probably all of that. People always start to believe their own narrative. Um, I jokingly said it was a long overdue vindication of my skills. Um, but uh, all you have to do is, is live through the other side of that chasm and, and you get humbled quickly. But 
we are under a lot of pressure to invest as fast as we can. And so, you know, we, we invested two or three billion dollars in 18 months. Um, I always jokingly say the best education money can buy. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but it was, uh, it was heady. And then, of course, tech collapse came. And, and one of the reasons ICG, in hindsight, had this huge value is everybody understood B2B was going to be a really big phenomenon, and there were relatively few ways to invest in that. So everybody was running through, you know, half a dozen public companies' doorways trying to get in, and then as some of the businesses that were just concepts didn't pan out, that changed quickly. Uh, but it was a great experience, and um, certainly different than I expected. I went thinking I was going to make a lot of money. Uh, Buck uh, had a culture where nobody was selling their stock, so none of us sold our stock. On the other hand, uh, we lost $50 billion of market cap and didn't have a 10 v 5 lawsuit, so uh, we played it straight. But I learned a great deal about risk and reward and how clients view risk and reward and how clients value legal services that is not always congruous with how lawyers view risk and reward. And so that, that ended up being a priceless experience. Yeah. And I have to think, you know, 2022 is certainly not like the, the bursting of the internet bubble or, or 2009, but that experience must have been running in the back of your mind in 2021 when anything that wasn't nailed down was getting sold through an IPO or a SPAC or something. What, what were some of the things that you learned during that experience when kind of the air came out of the valuations back then that was applicable maybe to to last year and this year? What's the line? History doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. <laughs> I would say that in the 2000, 2001, 99, 2001, probably the biggest difference was the companies that were going public were going public with an idea. There was no revenue model. There wasn't any proven business concept. I don't want to fall in the trap of saying, ah, oh, this time it's different um, because sure, I had the the same run-up and all the same investments and everything that everybody else did. But these were real businesses with actual revenue, sometimes not making money yet, but just the revenue growth and the sheer amount of data flowing through them was, you know, it was a very different experience. So I didn't worry, and I still don't worry, we can talk about where I think the market's going, about whether these businesses were going to fail. I didn't think they were going to fail. I don't think they're going to go to zero value, but they certainly aren't necessarily worth $8 billion. Or you saw how Klarna financed uh, a round at $46 billion and then just, I think it was the next round was at eight. But these are very viable businesses. They're not all going to make it, but some of them are not cash furnaces. In fact, are very efficient and don't use much cash. And the growth weight rates are just phenomenal. So some similarities, but um, making the bet that it won't be as traumatic as 2001 and 2002 were for us. I would agree. When you came back to Deckert, I have to think that your counsel benefited immensely from actually working inside a company. How did it change the way you interacted maybe with your colleagues at Deckert and also with your clients? Was there just an immediate credibility boost that you had been internal? Yeah, I think people were willing to accept me as um, something more than, quote, just a lawyer, close quote. And I think the things that I learned, as I said, by sitting on the investment committees and, you know, when we were under the misapprehension, we were wealthy, we invested in everything that had a pulse. And you could sort of see what survived through the tech collapse and what didn't. So we learned a lot on how to recognize value and risk. And then probably the biggest education was seeing 
what was important to clients from their lawyers. And it's not always what lawyers think is important, particularly in the tech area where you're growing so fast, you, you don't have as much demand for the absolute perfection of a crevasse-drafted trust indenture. You more or less get the preferences right in the preferred stock and you go, because uh, either it's going to blow up or fail pretty quickly. So it was that type of experience. And then certainly was exposed to enough venture capital and private equity sponsors. I felt I developed a pretty good sense of who's a charlatan and who really had the right motives and had the skill set. Over the course of Henry's seven-year tenure as CEO, Deckard has seen many record-breaking years. I asked him what he believes sets Deckard apart from other firms and how they position themselves to continue capitalizing on their strengths. I think we made the right bet on going global in the 80s. I can't take credit for that, but it was part to get out of just being a Philadelphia firm, and that was as much going to New York as, as anything. But that was during a period where global expansion was the, the theme of, of the month. And so I think that was good. And we understood that organic growth is great and always the preferred choice of growth. But if you're serious about growing, you have to be very committed to an active lateral recruiting program. And I think everybody in the AMLAW 50 would agree with that now, but we were early adopters. So I think that helped. And then we tried not to be all things to all people. We probably pick four or five practice areas where we think we're very good. White collar investigation, private equity, IP litigation, asset backed securitization, fund formation. And would go to money centers around the world where there was demand for that service. And while the road wasn't always linear, there was a global aspect to it. And I think getting all of that right and priced ourselves out of representing small public companies, priced ourselves out of doing general corporate work, but you know, focused on where our clients had their most pressing needs uh, on a global footprint was the key. Yeah, and you talked about uh, globalization and that long uh, e expansion. And today, some might say there's a, a little bit of a deglobalization trend. How does that play into what you're doing? I, I have to think that no matter what the short-term trend is, you've got to be sharp on cross-border transactions and business around the world. You know, in the long run, I consider the globalization of business like the tide coming in. It's irreversible, but you go through the post-2016 period in the U.S. with the Trump administration England passing Brexit, Marianne Le Pen in France, Xi's strengthening his hand in China, and lots of headwinds on globalization. All that being said, technology and capital have virtually zero cost of transmission and will move around the globe very quickly wherever it can to get the best risk-adjusted returns. So the regulation of commerce around the, the globe is actually getting more complex, more need for lawyers. So it's a short-term versus long-term investment approach saying, in the long term, I don't have any doubt uh, commerce will continue to be global and increasingly regulated and needing more lawyers than ever. And if you say Harvard Law School graduates 
200 lawyers a year, and they've been doing that for 40 years. And Deckert during that time has gone from 110 to 1,100 lawyers, and we're just one law firm. All law firms have grown like that. The demand for lawyers is still very, very strong, but it, it's a longer term play. And if what you're worried about is, and law firms are on a cash basis revenue model, your profits for the year, you'd causes you to hesitate to invest uh, in those global offices. So it's trying to get the balance of what's enough to be there as the opportunity comes, because you never really know when it's going to come, and what's just being wasteful. Yeah, well, it sounds like having that global platform already just creates a moat around the business competitively. Shifting gears, Henry, I wanted to ask you how you dealt with COVID. How did you all adapt kind of to a new way of doing business? And what are, what are some of the innovations that you saw that you think are here to stay? We're still learning, but I think in the beginning, I mean, it was, it was frightening because the level of work across all of our practices in March and April of uh, 2000 was unlike anything we'd seen. And we thought, wow, how, how long can this go on? And at that time, I, I mean, the two most important decisions I think we made is we made a decision that the comeback was going to come and it was going to come quickly. And we didn't have any better crystal ball. It was just, you know, our belief in the resilience of the global economy. And the second thing was we made a decision not to let anyone off, secretaries, receptionists, associates, because we just didn't think from a humanitarian perspective, we should let people go when we didn't think they could get another job. And we did, really did believe that the world would come back. And we learned a lesson in 07 and 08, like every other big law firm, we had significant layoffs and in some ways lost a generation of lawyers there, which we were feeling 10 years later and we didn't want that to happen. Now, of course, the harder part was actually not getting through the darkest days of COVID in 2020. Hardest part was we had no idea how the world was going to come back in 2021. And you know, we found ourselves, I always joke, one thing you can count on law firms getting wrong all the time is headcount. And we found demand was far outstripping the number of lawyers we had. Our attrition rates went up because people had a lot more jobs and they could work in Idaho. So, you know, it, it forced us along a sort of a hybrid work model that had been developing slowly before COVID on a Friday afternoon. You wouldn't find many people in here uh, to suddenly Fridays, certainly everybody understood we'd work remotely, but we adhered all along to believing humans want to be together when they work, that partners need to be able to talk to each other face to face to bounce ideas off, develop judgment. If you have any true commitment to diversity and inclusiveness, you have to have people in the room together. Too easy for people to be in silos and that the associate experience is an apprenticeship culture and they need to be able to mark up documents. So we um, tell people we expect them to be in a, at least half the time for reasons that I can't articulate particularly well. That's working fine in London, in the continent of Europe. They never left, even when the offices were supposed to be closed. It was a 10-minute walk from their home to the office. The, it was a three-story building, so they didn't have to worry about being in an elevator. It was just easier to go to the office. But on the large Acela corridor offices, we're still working at getting people back, and we think it'll take time. Probably one of the unexpected consequences of the current economic slowdown is we think that will, in fact, get people back in the office more. So COVID, uh, hopefully in the rearview mirror and, and obviously some 
lasting changes maybe in the workplace. What are you seeing in the market right now? What kind of creative structures are you seeing or transaction types that you're seeing? Obviously, the IPO window has been shut almost in an unprecedented way, only a few times. What's going on right now, um, given the seat that you sit in, Henry? The transactional world has tapped the brakes awfully hard right now. And everyone's on hold. And this is just one person's view is that, as I said, there's a trillion dollars of undrawn capital in the private equity space. They aren't going to give those commitments back. They're getting paid two and 20 on it, and they expect to deploy it. No one knows how to price anything right now because we have a a foot race going on between inflation slash interest rates on the one hand and the capital waiting to be deployed. I think that will only break when people see some progress on inflation. And you could argue that we're already seeing an improvement in core inflation and that that's going to come sooner. So if you're asking me today, I'd say, look, look at what's happened with the investment banks. You know, the world has by and large shut down in Q2 and it hasn't opened back up. And I'm not sure it's going to open it back up this summer, but the capital is out there. People just need to be comfortable and have more confidence in how to price it. So on financing, no one wants to do any debt issuance because they don't know how to price it. And is the bank going to get stuck with a broken bond issue? But I do think that will break. And so A, relatively few businesses are being sold. B, most businesses and households are not over levered. In fact, you know, probably the richest they've been in history. And if they're going to do transactions, it's going to be done in some way where people feel the risk and pricing risk is being shared. So classic time for earnouts, or instead of trying to argue what the absolute value of a business is, do a a stock for stock exchange with another comparable business where you say, look, we we may not know whether the absolute value of this business is $1,000 or $50, but we know on a relative basis that they're about the same. So why don't we do a 50-50 merger? And then we're starting to see more bids being lobbed in. It's, uh, I, I can't say that they're necessarily crystallizing in transactions, but I, I think we will go through a period where suddenly people understand they can't get a 3% mortgage anymore. Maybe it's a four and three quarter percent mortgage, and maybe you're not going to be buying businesses at 12 times EBITDA, and you know, you're going to go back to a more historic norm, probably not as low as five or six, but pick a number between five and six and 12. Within kind of deal making, obviously, I know you've always had a personal interest in tech and um, that that's a, uh, a huge secular trend that despite any short term setback is is going to be with us for decades. You know, I always look at our client base here at ICR and every, co- every company is a tech company. What's your take on the tech sector and, and, and what's going to happen there and, you know, other industries, commitment to innovation and technology, even law firms? Uh, law firms, big law firms, um, are monuments to the status quo. So, you know, brilliant men come to me and say, what are you going to do when you're uh, disintermediated? I thought, well, I've been doing this for 40 years. It hasn't happened yet. I don't doubt it, it will eventually get there, just like the big four will somehow figure out a way to be able to practice law in the U.S. Um, but 
I'm not waking up in the middle of the night worried about who's going to be the Amazon in the big law firm. But at the same time, we're true believers in tech. You just look at the growth rates in technology companies and how they're just twice the growth rates in non-technology companies. Interest rates get higher. You know, it will have a big impact on the sort of tail end value and the cash flow models. But technologies here, growth equity used to be considered the equivalent of venture capital, couldn't really make any money on it. The deals were too small. Now you see the Sequoias of the world, Insight, people like that, Tiger Global, doing late-stage growth equity and, and making a fortune. Clearly, you know, the brakes are tapped, but have complete faith. We are living through a period of huge technology transition everywhere that you've mentioned, health tech, fintech, ed tech, and uh, we don't see that going away. And we see ample capital how do you split your time between kind of running a global organization and, and client work? You know, I'm a little bit of the satchel page quote. I never had a job. I just played ball. You know, fortunately, like you, I enjoy what I'm doing. On the practice side, I mean, I, I try to understand what's going on. I'm usually pretty deeply involved in those clients as a limited partner, but I'm not trying to do the work day to day. And just running the firm, I try to be online by four o'clock every morning. That way I can deal with the Asia emails and the European emails. And lucky enough to have really great partners who everybody's pitching in and covering for one another. But yeah, there is no, there is no coasting in this business. I had a good friend of mine in private equity who told me one time, if you have 12 great people, you could take over the world. And I kind of believe that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's no substitute for experience, and when companies choose to work with an established law firm like Deckard, they're tapping into a deep well of insight and knowledge, as well as gaining access to resources on a global scale. Something like that is difficult, if not impossible, to replicate in-house. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, Subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Henry Nassau for being on the podcast today. His experience gives him such a well-rounded point of view on all aspects of business and certainly the law. And that's been a critical driver of his success and the impressive growth of Deckard. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.